especially of their favorite passages. And the end result is most English Bible translators are reluctant to change the wording, especially of favorite passages, even if the language is a bit outdated or even if there might be a better way to express it. Uh, so sometimes that's what you're dealing with. And may, maybe that explains why most of the versions are going to be uh, flesh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, the other one I want to do, and then I, I need to give it over to Lee because uh, we got a lot to do tonight. The other one I want to point out, notice we, we, we started on it, but we never got to the phrase that I thought you guys would, would click onto is, what is the relationship between the Father and the Son? We've got glory as of the only Son, ESV, only glory as of the only begotten Son, glory as of the one and only Son, glory as of the only begotten Son, uh, let's see, which he received as the Father's only Son, okay? So, so what do you hear? You hear there's two ways of doing it. You've got the begotten language, and then you've got what? The one and only language, okay? How many of you have used the word begotten with your family, your friends this last week? I didn't think so. Oh, you, you did? Okay. Oh, in the new member class. Okay, well, I guess that counts, right? So, so you see, what, what the newer versions are doing is they're choosing to translate begotten into phraseology that people actually understand. <laughs> uh, you know, if we lived 100 years ago, begotten was a more common term, right? But um, so it, it just emphasizes the unique nature, right, of, of uh, that relationship between the Father and the Son. So, so the one and only Son um, get, captures something of that idea, okay? So again, we're just we're just making observations. You guys did a great job on that. We're we're not we haven't talked about well what do you do with those differences yet? But at this point, we're just trying to help you to see those differences. Okay, Lee, come on up and uh, take us into our new material. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Lee Slaughter. <laughs> yeah, thanks. The old, yeah, I don't know if that works, but so thanks, Keith, for letting me do this. Hopefully I will uh, speak in intelligible words. So we're going to go really fast. I'm only saying that because we have 18 different observations to make, one in sentences, nine in paragraphs, and then five to make in discourses. And we've got to go through, hopefully, examples, so you can at least do one example of each one. So I'm going to say this is serious reading uh, why are we, why are we, we're approaching scripture different than you do on a regular day to day reading basis, right? Um, you know, one of the points, and I, I want to, you know, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul encourages Timothy, telling him, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these the faithful men who will be able to teach others, teach others also. And then in verse 15, he says, to accurately handle the word of truth. So all that we're doing is in an effort to be accurate in how we handle Scripture. Um, and so we're looking at the meanings and significance of words and translations because they're all helping lead us to an understanding of what, what truly the Scripture says. Unfortunately, I don't read Hebrew. I don't read Greek. Probably most of you don't either. So the only choice we have is to read in English. 
So we're, we're dealing, I don't want to say it's a handicap because we really have tremendous tools and resources. So jumping in, so I'm going to say this is serious reading because we're going to dig in deep. We're going to look first at sentences, we're going to look at paragraphs, and we're going to look at discourses. And there's different observations we're going to be looking for in each of those. So the first, some of these are, are characteristics you've seen in a precepts class or in a class with Dave and Cece or other classes. So we're just making observations about the text and we're looking for different elements. So the first element we're, we're called to in the book um, is repetition of words. Look for words that repeat within a sentence. Look for words that repeat uh, within the text around the sentence. So we're going to do an example. We're going to look at 1 John 2, 15 and 17. Which word repeats in the first sentence? And I'm gonna, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with Noah and we're just going to go around the room and you all are going to get the chance, many, many chances to answer, and we're going to do kind of an S through the room, and then we'll go back to Noah. So Noah, what word repeats in the first sentence? Love appears twice. What word appears three times? World? Uh <clears throat> So world appears, right? And if I were to look, uh, does the word word world appear in any other sentences? And in the next sentence. And in the next sentence. It's interesting, though, we could look at love, too. And love only appears, right, in the first sentence, but it appears twice. So uh, is it in every sentence? Yes. Um, does it always have the definite article in front of it? Another question we can ask is, is it always the world? Uh, and yes, it is. Um, so when we look at the word love, uh, the other word is love. It, it repeats twice. Um, and it's only in the first sentence. So we're going to make a conclusion just at what we've looked at by the repetition. What does the repetition lead us to believe this passage is pointing to? What is this repetition? So we've seen these repeated words. Based on the repeated words we've seen, what indication do we have about what this passage is about just simply based on the repetitive words? Love of the world. Okay? So there's, a, there's, there's an aspect of this sentence that's... And when we try to grasp the full understanding of this, we want to be grappling with the love of the world in this passage. And that's all we're trying to get. We're just making observations at this point, and that's, that's enough of an observation, right? Uh, in particular, love in the world. So the next thing we're going to look at is contrast. Are we going fast? So Amy gets to answer the next one. Look, at, look for items, ideas, and individuals that are contrasted against each other. So our example, Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, whoever... But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So what's contrasted? Remember Amy's answering. Exactly. So we're, we're pointing to two different types of people, right? The oppressors and those who are kind. Um, how are they contrasted? What's the contrast between them? Because we're looking for contrast. We found the two groups are being... 
right? One gives honor, one gives contempt. Um, so, and the way they treat each other tells us something about the people, right? The way they treat others, not each other, the way they treat others, right? Tells us about their relationship with God. So this passage, to get the fullness of this passage, we're understanding that these, that this contrast is pointing to how the individuals, right, relate to God by their actions with other people around them. Um, one reflects contempt for God and one honors God. So that's all we're trying to get, right? We're moving fast. We're just making observations. We're looking at the sentences. We're starting to get some flavor about what's there. The next one's comparisons. Contrast focuses on differences. Um, there's comparisons focus on similarities. Sometimes uh, we're looking for items, for ideas, individuals that are compared with each other. So we just did contrast. In comparisons, they're not the same, right? The contrast is looking at differences. Comparisons may not be differences, probably not be differences. So our example is Proverbs twenty-five twenty-six: Like a muddied spring or a polluted well are the righteous who give way to the wicked. Brianna, what's in comparison? Yeah, so we're, right, there's a comparison of how wells, right, how wells function and how people function. And uh, the conclusion is how the righteous who give away, give way to the wicked are like a muddied spring. So the righteous, who in theory would be a good person, right, if they actually give way to the wicked, the righteous who give way to the wicked are the same as a muddied spring or a polluted well. What good is a muddied spring or a polluted well? Not much for water, right? Because the spring, like the righteous person, was once clean, pure, and useful, but now it's contaminated and useless. So, um, do you see how when we dig to see what the comparison means, we see a little more in the meaning of the passage? We're not just reading. We're not just reading words. We're looking for the meanings of the words. Lists. This is a pretty easy one. Uh, list any time you in, list any time you encounter more than two items, more than two items, you have a list. One item's not a list. Uh, you can identify them as a list. Some questions you want to ask about the list: Is there an order in the list? Is there a progression in the list? Um, are the items grouped in any particular way that they're giving us some significance in the meaning of the passage? Um, <clears throat> Yes. Uh, basis for lists is often from the repeated key words. A lot of times you make lists from the words that are repeated. So, so what you're saying, it's, it's lists and repetitive. So there are two different observations you're saying. Sometimes you're making observations of repetitive words and lists of repetitive words. No. Yeah, and uh, and all we're looking for at this point is what the lists are. And I'm going to say we're going to have hybrid observations because it can be a list that has a repetitive word, a keyword. So when Dave's talking about a keyword, he's talking about 
in that passage, there's a word that's predominant. It's seen in many places, right? And it may reflect something about the list and how it's and how it's approaching. So, and actually, what we're I'm gonna I'm gonna propose that those are potentially two different observations I can make, right? I could I could find the key words, and I could find linkages in the key words to the lists, or I could just find lists. So Dave's pointing out in in his experience, he's seen a lot of cases where the key words are often tied to the lists. Um, and that's good because we're just looking for the observations. And those are observations that are going to come when I start looking at bigger sections of text, right? So what are the three things listed? Morgan. Yeah, so then you have a question, is there an order implied there? I'm not going to say the, the text specifically tells you there's an order, you could try to imagine if there's an order or conclude because the lust of the flesh, does it proceed to lust of the eyes? Does it proceed to the pride of life? I'm not sure I would conclude that, but we would ask that. Is there any kind of progression in there from one from one word to the other? I don't think you can definitively make a statement from that list. Are the items grouped in any way? In this particular case, I don't, I don't think we're seeing groups. Probably when we see other lists, and we'll see lists of lists. <laughs> Um, so the first ones we've done are pretty elementary, right? Now we're going to look at cause and effect. Um, often biblical writers will state a cause and then state an effect of that cause. Um, so what is, there's actually multiple causes and multiple effects in this passage. So I'm going to say, Jolene, what's the first cause? Yeah, gentle answer. Um, what's the effect of the first cause, Jolene? Turns away wrath. Um, Ron, what's the second clause? What's the second cause? Belden. Harsh words. And what's the effect of harsh words? Stirs up anger. So um, there's a cause and effect here, but what else is here? Right? There's also a contrast. So interesting. So as Dave's kind of helped point out, sometimes we're going to compound our observations. So not only do I have a cause and effect, but I actually have a contrast between, right, the harsh words and the, was it kind words? Yeah, gentle words. So I'm, if you go through the book, you're going to go through more examples. I'm only going through one at a time. So if, if, the, if the concept makes sense, we don't, you know, ask a question if it doesn't make sense, and we'll try to explore it some more. Um, <clears throat> figures of speech. Uh, figures of speech is, are images in which words are used in a sense other than the normal literal sense. So you might see a passage that says Christ is a door. Right? That's figurative speech. Christ is not actually a door, but there's aspects of Christ that, where he represents a door and what he does represents a door. Right? <clears throat> if you knock on it, that doesn't mean you have to knock on his head. Right? Uh, <clears throat> what image is the author trying? So when we look at figures of speech, what image is the author trying to convey with the figure of speech? That's the question we've got to ask 
Because it's not literal. We know it's not a literal meaning. Uh, and we've got to recognize it's a figure of speech and then try to understand what the figure of speech is telling us. So, what figures of speech do you see in Psalm 119.105? Linda. And? There's three. Yeah, lamp, feet, and path are all figures of speech. Um, so, does that mean on a dark night... I should get my Bible out as I'm walking to my car and hold it high so it will be a light to my feet, right? That would be a literal understanding, and that doesn't make sense, does it? The literal understanding is clearly not there. So God's Word is not a literal lamp to light up the dark, tra- or the dark tra- trail sorry, for us. Rather, it's a figurative lamp that allows us to see our way through life. So... We're saying Scripture is a useful tool for us to see how to progress, how to how to live live our lives, right? Yes. Uh, did I leave light out? Okay, add light. Well, lamp and light are both figurative, right? Thank you, David, for catching my error. Lamp and light are both figurative, right? Terms to fix my PowerPoint. So everybody, everybody catches his observation. Great observation. So yeah, it, and I, and I can, can I say it can be easy in figures of speech to overlook some, right? Because you just understand what they mean, and it doesn't even strike to you that. So yes, there's actually four. Uh, now we're going to look at conjunctions. Uh, conjunctions. Note terms that join units like and, but, and for. And that's not an exclusive list, just examples. So always take note of the conjunctions and identify their purpose and function and note what they're connecting. This, to me, is one of the most meaningful things to do when I'm looking at a new passage or a passage and trying to understand it. Find all the conjunctions, find all the linkages, because what's modifying what and what's explaining what can be probably one of the most significant things, particularly if you're reading something Paul wrote. (laughs) He loves conjunctions. Say what? And run-on sentences. Well, yeah. Can you have a run-on sentence if you don't have periods? I don't know. In Greek, there are no run-on sentences. (laughs) It's just those run-on translators. Uh, It can be that, right, exactly. So Dave's showing us, right, that there's not single observations. We're compounding our observations together and expanding the meaning of the passage, right? So the, the and, but, and for are just highlighters for us. They're pointers to us to look why there's a conjunction, why it's at, what the and is for, what the but's for, what the for is for, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Uh, so where are we at? Christy, can you do this one? What are the conjunctions? Yeah. What are the observations? What other observation forms are present? So I want to say to a degree... 
just answering the question what the conjunctions are is pretty easy. The digger deeping is trying to understand why the conjunctions are there, right? What's being connected. Um, what other observation can we make about this passage? There's a contrast present, right? And isn't that what Dave told us was going to happen? <laughs> so for the wages sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. One of the things you've got to be careful with four, often that we four will almost always point to something before. So when it starts a sentence, you've got to look at the paragraph or the sentence before to figure out what the four is talking about. So we only have we only have half of the of the thought, right? And how often do we say, for the wages of sin is death, and we don't connect it back to what it's talking about, right? We quote that verse all the time, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the conjunction but indicates a contrast, right? So we've actually done a contrast and a conjunction. Um, Comparisons. So what are we doing? Where am I at? Did I jump ahead? Okay. Okay. Oh, so we're still in conjunctions, right? Okay, sorry. I forgot, we're still in conjunction. I expected to change examples, but I still have another conjunction. I should have a therefore, therefore, right? So therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, and as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. So what's the conjunction? CC. I'm going, I'm going S through the room. Conjunction CC is? Therefore. Yes, it's therefore. So um, to figure out what this conjunction is, you've got to read something before that. Right? How much do you think you have to read? We're in Romans, we're in Romans 12, 1. Yeah, you got to go through. Usually it's pretty close, right? But in this case, this is a conclusion really to the past 11 chapters, right? So look back in the text to determine what, what the earlier reason is. It may refer to a larger argument or even several previous chapters. In this case, in Romans, we're actually pointing back to Romans 1 through 11. Man, does that, that's going to take some serious looking, right? To start to grasp what this therefore is pointing back to, right? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe better than a four, where four is modifying a phrase that therefore might have a bigger a bigger picture, as Dave's pointed out. Very helpful, Dave. Uh, so the word therefore, right, which opens Romans 12, actually connects back to the previous 11 chapters. Um, and I'm not going to try to show you that in five minutes or less. Oh, conjunctions. Note terms that join units, like and, button for. We've already done that, right? So now we're going to verbs. And uh, I have to slow down here because verbs are my nemesis because I am an engineer, right? <laughs> verbs are important because they communicate the action in the sentence. Note whether a verb is past present future active passive or imperative <sighs> an awesome task right so we're going to do several examples to go through this and explanations right 
Uh, here's a question to ask. Does it present a progressive idea? That is, does it have a, a continued action? I was going, I am going. That is, what kind of word? A word that has a continuing action is a progressive verb, right? Sorry, I should have bolded that, right? So what do I say? They don't even put progressive up there, right? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> what's an imperative? What's an imperative verb? And you know, and here's what hurts my brain. Uh, maybe if you're if you're David or Keith, you might be able to read Greek and Hebrew, and you can look at the word, and because how the word is spelled, you know it's an imperative word. So because that's true dummy engineer assumes must be true in english right can't we just look at a word and tell whether it's imperative or go to oxford dictionary and we'll just look it up and find all those imperatives as we're going through well it doesn't work that way in english right we're going to actually identify the imperative words in english by how they're used right so you would ask what is an imperative verb how do i identify them uh we're going to get there in a minute i'm going to save that so active verbs are those in which, um, in which the subject is doing the action. So Bill hit the ball. That's an active. So a passive, Bill was hit by the ball. Not Bill hit the ball, but Bill was hit by the ball. So, yes, the nemesis to the engineer, very fine differences. Oh, this distinction is important in Paul's letters because it often delineates between what we do and what God does. So when we look at active and passive, those become very important in Paul's letters because often that's the difference between our action and God's action, whether it's passive for us or active for God, right? Uh, so, verbs, we're going to do the imperatives. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, shall I give you my helpful tools? before I ask you to identify. An imperative verb, I'm going to say, is a bossy verb. It's telling you to do something. It's a command, right? So where do I see it? It usually doesn't have a subject. So if I look at the sentence, the sentence is missing a subject because um, I'm being commanded by you know, the, the, the sentence. Uh, it gives you an order or a command. Um, it's, they tend to be direct and sharp. They tend to be at the beginning of the sentence. Oh man, that's a big help. <laughs> when I'm trying to find those imperative verbs in English, I can look at the beginning of the sentence and they often come in there and there's no subject, right? Then I'm going to find those imperative verbs. Because we don't want to miss the imperatives because they are commands to us often from God, right? That's why we put such emphasis on imperative verbs. So... What are examples where you find imperative verbs? Recipes, do-it-yourself manuals, game instructions, car instructions. Turn right here. Right? That's an imperative verb, which you don't want to miss. Right? So, what are the imperative verbs in that sentence? Above. Where are we at? We're coming all the way over to Keith. Yeah. 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 So, 
helpful hint. Where do the verbs come at the beginning of of a sentence or the phrase, right? So be completely humble. Be patient. I'm going to say, isn't this actually modifying the be patient? So is it imperative? Being patient, right. So, but I, you know, there's, right, they still carry the imperative nature as a command, right? Expand the command of be patient to bearing. Um, Make every effort, right? They always come at the beginning of the phrase, the beginning of the sentence, and their bossy words are telling you to do something. Does it make it easier? You don't have to have a Greek dictionary to find the imperative spellings of words, right? Although we have people in this room that can do that. You you can just hang with the with the engineer and just look for the location of the word and figure out whether it's imperative or not. Okay, active and passive. There are both active and passive verbs. What is active? Right, Bill hit the ball and the ball hit Bill. So what are the active and passive verbs? Karen, man, I gave you a hard one. Yep. Is there another one there? Is? Christ is seated? I don't think so, right? So Christ is set, that's an active, with Christ set your hearts. So that's a, sorry. Since then you have been raised, that's passive, with Christ. Set your hearts uh, on things above. What else can we say about that that word there? It's active and imperative, right? Um, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Gabriella, do you want to try? It's up to you. Find the active and passive verbs and Right, having been present, having been is is passive. We're also chosen is passive. Uh, it's like I was hit by the ball. We're chosen, right? Having been predestined, um, him who works out. So now I have a subject doing something, right? So that next one's active. Right? You starting to see the pattern? Active and passives. The engineer needs all the help he can get. Pronouns. Oh man, this is easier. Um, examples, we're going to look at Ephesians 1, 3. Um, man, I already put them up there. Okay. <laughs> Betsy, what are the pronouns? Yeah, who, our, and us are all pronouns. And who do they refer to? So you might, sometimes, I'm going to say, you may have to open up your Bibles to answer this question because it's not in this sentence, <laughs> Right? Who is who, our, and us? You've actually got to look at the previous two two passages to figure out who the who, our, and us is. I mean, you kind of make a general statement that it could mm-hmm. be the person writing it and the mm-hmm. person writing it too. Good job. It actually is. So it turns out to be Paul, 
as a writer and us, the Ephesians, or the Ephesian church, right? So, so our and us is Paul collectively referring to them. But who's the who referring to? Yeah, we can actually see that one in the sentence, right? Praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us. So that pronoun is actually pointing to something in the sentence, really pointing to the Father, to God. Right. Okay, now you all have a command of those. I gave you, uh, hopefully, you, did everybody pick up this handout? Yeah. Looks like this page. Okay, I have made you all experts. So your goal is to identify all the types of observations of sentences made on this page. And uh, and I'll start going around the room here in a minute, and I'll let you just identify one. So Yes, it's already marked up, right? So I want you... So I've given you a handout that's a duplicate of what's on the PowerPoint. So here, I'll make it easier. We'll just blow up a little bit of it. So on page 62 in the book, or you can look at the handout if you want to scribble on the handout, not in your book. So what I want you to do, we've gone through nine different observations. I want you to tell me an observation that you see done on this piece of paper. So I'm going to start with Glenn, and we're going to keep going down the row. Pick a different, pick a different one. You only have to find one. You don't have to find them all, but the farther down the road we get, your options will start decreasing. So we talked about types of, what are the types of observations we've talked about so far? And you can flip to the next page in your book, and I think there's a whole list of them there, right? What page is that? So on this page are marked... So what you would do at the end of your time of doing observations, you would mark up a piece of paper like this, right? Probably wouldn't, I, I don't know if I do it in my Bible because I don't have enough space between the lines. So I'm going to say there's repetitive words, there's contrast, there's comparisons, lists, cause and effect, figures of speech, conjunctions, verbs, and pronouns. We're looking for where they've marked one of those observations. Just find one. Therefore is a conjunction, and and I love Dave pointing to us. It points back possibly to a bigger passage and as a conclusion. So, therefore, I urge you, be nice to know what that therefore is there for. But we're not going to dig, we're not going to dig there right now. So yes, that's a that's a conjunction. Mike, what do you got? Okay, we have an active verb, right? And it actually appears twice, so it actually makes a list. Sorry, I stole that one. Right? You as a pronoun. And what's really interesting about how they mark the you in this passage? Yeah, right. It's brother, and, they, and they drew a line to continue through because we can follow this pronoun throughout this whole passage. It's kind of interesting the way they marked it, right? So they're showing this pronoun progresses throughout the sentence, right? And refers to the same people each time. What else? Mr. Lamanac. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's an and, there's two, right? And that, that list is actually going to the pronoun. I like it. 
Anson. But. What what is but? A conjunction. A conjunction, right? I like it. Eric. What's FOS stand for? FOS. Point to a figure of speech. Find a figure of speech in there for me. Right? Isn't it nice how they put bodies? Right? And it's interesting that he points out that it's plural. And this is very interesting. Offer your bodies, plural, as a singular sacrifice. (laughs) You can only offer one. You can only offer one body, I guess. I don't know. You as brothers and sisters, so they have bodies, but you are... Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Exactly. Right. But it's interesting how the plural and singular goes through there. So all the figures of speech are bodies, sacrifice, uh, pattern. I think there's another one, but it may be on the next page. Oh, the offer. Right. Mr. Gibson, what do you see? What do you see we haven't picked yet? It's a cause and effect. Remember, we talk about cause and effect. Then, if then, so there's a there's an effect that's implied in this sentence. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Where? Which? Which is? Are we talking about? I don't know, is is a command word? Is that a bossy word? Okay, I need a I I'm the engineer. I don't claim to be wise in any fashion. So is is it help me, oh language guys? Is that is imperative? So, so as, right, when we start talking about this statement here, connecting back to this offering your body's living sacrifice, this is your true worship. But I think the imperatives probably actually come, um, offer your bodies, right? And offering your bodies is a true and perfect worship, right? So. Those are excellent questions to ask. So when you get to a sentence, so you're, you're digging, so what, it's not whether it's right or wrong because you're looking at this and you're asking the question, right? What does that word represent? And and now you have to figure out it links back to something in the sentence at least, right? It's not a conjunction, but it's actually linking backwards, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Right? And a contrast. Right? And command, right? 
So, fun with grammar. Is that what this is? <laughs> grammar is never fun. I will, I will agree with that. So, yes. Well, I'm gonna. It's not a pronoun, right? But it's but it's referring. Should consider a pronoun. So we have to go back to find out what this is, and this is right. This previous statement up here, right? Offering your bison is what this is. Right. Okay, I like it. So there you go. I'm glad there's more than an engineer in this room. So I love what you guys are doing. You're starting to dig into seeing the connections in the passage, right? You're not just grabbing one word and letting it stand by itself or even a sentence, right? But you're connecting aspects of the whole passage to itself. And it's all driven by what? You're just looking at observations of the words, right? There's more observations we're going to do of, of paragraphs, right? There's, and you're alluding to some of them even as we're going here. But um, <clears throat> so you guys are doing great, right? So for an assignment, I think you're going to be doing some marking of a passage. So, Fish, observing fish. You know, I'll say that this lesson started, I didn't, I didn't relate it, but this, this previous lesson related to a guy who got a love letter. And if you got a love letter, wouldn't you want to be very careful about everything it said from that person you care about? So how hard he looked at that letter, very carefully studying it. So that's what we were doing with, with our sentences. We were carefully studying our sentences, very deliberate, right, effort in reading. Uh, and then he talked about looking at fish. I just put a pretty picture of fish. I, I looked for a fish in a jar, and they were just too boring. So I, I picked this picture of fish because it was a little bit more exciting. And his point of his discussion of fish, and he's just going to go through an example, and that's this guy goes to a naturalist, and this guy wants to be like a, I don't know, what, some kind of botanist or whatever. And so he's one of beginning by teaching him to do observations of fish. And this guy looks at fish day after day after day. And the guy keeps pointing out he hasn't finished his observations and sends him back to observe some more. Then after he's done, he sends him back to observe some more. And then he identifies what he's not observing properly, right? So he goes on and on and on observing. So that story is likened to what we're doing, right? Because we are methodically going through a passage. We've just gone through sentences, and now we're going to look at observations of paragraphs. So do you see the similarities between studying God's Word? Word and studying fish, as explained in chapter 4 of Grasping God's Word. Read the Bible carefully. Look for items we discussed in chapter 3. Look for other details as well. Observe. Look some more. Observe some more. Look again. Ask questions of the text. Look again. See more. Dig. Make notes. Mark the observations you see. Read the passage. Look for other details. There's more. Keep digging. You get the idea. God is speaking here, and you want to be very careful and clear to what he says. That's why we're going to the effort we're going to. Uh, God intended us to have a written record of what he said us, told us to be told, or what happened. So because he intended us to have a written record, we need to be able to carefully read the written record to see all that God intended us to see in those writings right that's why we're going to the effort we're going to it makes reading in my mind more exciting right and often it generates questions 
And there are tools we will eventually get to on how to answer the questions because you'll find that the questions cannot, the observations will just lead you to more questions. So now we're going to move to paragraphs. Well, I gave you nine observations for sentences. Now we're going to go to nine observations for paragraphs. And we've got 25 minutes to go through those. And discourses. So general and specific. Find general statements that are followed by specific examples or applications of the general. Or also find specific statements that are summarized by general ones. So sometimes the text goes from general to specific. And sometimes it goes specific to general. That's all it's saying. We're going to be looking for those statements. Our example is going to be Galatians 5.16. What is or are Paul's general statements? It's one, one verse there. Oh, am I back to Noah again? So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of us. What are the general statements in there? It's It's... Probably more obvious than you realize. It's so obvious that once I say it, it's... Yeah, right? Walk by the Spirit and gratify desires of the flesh are the two general statements. Right? Turn your Bibles to Galatians 5. Okay, open your Bibles up. Hope you brought them. And I want you to identify where the following verses progress from... The general statements. So we're looking at this passage. Walk by the Spirit is a general statement. Gratify desires plus a general statement. But there is more detail that's going to lead us to, right, specific. What specifically does this mean? We're at 516. And I'm going to actually, I'll let you look at it for a while. <laughs> it's after 516. Where does it progress? What were yes. Where does it get more specific? Uh it's it's after verse 16 it gets more specific. So we just got general statements, right? All we got is general statements here. But they're gonna be more specific. And remember, we're looking at paragraphs, not sentences. So I just found the general statements in a sentence, but the specifics are gonna come later. So bigger passages. Where do I get more specifics of those two general statements? Okay, what's verse 26 say? Okay. So I'm going to point to 19 and 20 and 21 as list of desires of the flesh and the specifics of walk by the Spirit we're going to see in 22 through 23. Do you see that? They're lists, right? But they're general statements leading to more specific details. So what are desires of the flesh? The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factious, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So the general statement is, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. What are the desires of the flesh? We just saw a whole list of them. 
So isn't it interesting? We can, we can focus on 19, 20, and 21 as just lists, but they're actually connected together back at fruits of the Spirit and desires of the flesh are connected to each other, right? Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what is what are... Um, and I'm going to say fruits of the Spirit are the specifics of walking by the Spirit. And what are the specifics of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And oh, by the way, I'm using all NIV here because the textbook uses NIV. It tells you that in the very front. So all the, all the quotes we see in the book, unless it's, they've identified what text it's from, are coming from NIV. So, so that you see the same thing you see in the textbook. I'm using NIV up here. Mm-hmm. Fruit of the Spirit. Now, maybe I'm getting hung up on the word fruit. This is like an outcome of walking with the Spirit. It's not if you walk by the Spirit, you will do these things. It's these things are evidence that you are walking by the Spirit. Um, I, I have to dig deeper into the passage, but because um, I'm, I'm missing these words in between. <laughs> and I, when I, when I, you're going into deeper discussions right that are looking probably more at what the passage is saying to dig deeper so i my my puny brain didn't come quite prepared well enough yes we know these are in opposition to each other right from 17 To specifics. And so, yeah, I'm I am teasing you, and these are questions that fall out of looking at the detailed observations, right? You start to ask that question. Okay, I can tell you that this is a detail, right, of this general statement. But then you start asking more questions. You're trying to understand why that detail is there. What's the significance of the detail? Why is the detail given there? And how does this detail affect me? How does this detail affect how I should live? How I should walk, right? Uh, <clears throat> Ephesians. Are we in Ephesians? Yes. No, we're in Galatians, right. So... Uh, yes. Yeah, and, and, and like I say, here's the fun part of what you guys are seeing is looking at the observations that I'm making are pricking my senses on what else is there. What is the further meaning? And now I'm having to dig deeper and look harder at the passage, right, to make more of the connections. There's more connections there than I'm going over right now, right? But we're just seeing how these observations are leading to that. It's, hopefully that's why, that's why we're doing what we're doing, right? So you're doing great, great questions. 
Roger. Questions and answers. Notice if the text is built on a question and answer format, occasionally an author will raise a rhetorical question and they'll answer the question. So we'll look at one of those. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall I go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's a rhetorical question. Paul's not in any way encouraging that. And actually, you have to go look at the previous passage to start get where he's coming from, right? Um, open your Bibles to Romans 6.1 and identify Paul's answer. He does give an answer. So he's just told us our sins are forgiven, right? We've just gone through a passage that talks about how God forgives us. Okay, that's great. We're forgiven. Let's go. Lust. <laughs> no, that's not what Paul is saying. He doesn't want us to draw a wrong conclusion from the previous passage, so he goes here, right? So what's the answer to the question? May it never be. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So he asks a question, then he answers it. And there's, an, and there's a truth there for us that we need to apply, right? There's a truth about salvation and forgiveness that's just revealed in, this, in these two passages, right? And there are people, I will tell you, that will believe because they're forgiven they can go on sinning. Right? They forgot, they didn't read this passage. <laughs> There are numerous examples of this in Romans. If you go to page 73, you look at several examples. Uh, we're going to look at Mark 2, 1 through 3, 6. So there's a bunch of question and answers in Mark. We're going to look at a piece of that. Uh, okay, in the example of Romans, Paul alone is talking and answering questions. So I want you to look at Mark in your Bibles, 2, 15 through 3, 6. What is going on in this passage? Did you find it? Somebody finds it. I won't make you go around the room. Just general, just in general, what's going on in this passage? Previously, you saw Paul asking a question and answering it. What's going on in this one? Right. But what else is... So we're looking at questions and answers. What can, what, what can you tell me about questions and answers in this, in this passage here? Yeah. Who's asking the questions? Who's answering the questions? Right? <clears throat> Actually, I think they all start asking questions. <laughs> so, Jesus and the Pharisees are both involved in asking questions and answering questions in this passage. Um, you have just accomplished a dialogue observation. What's a dialogue observation? Multiple people talking, right? <laughs> Paul talking to himself is not a dialogue. <laughs> but Paul, I'm sorry, but Jesus and the Pharisees talking is a dialogue, and we're seeing what they're saying to each other. They're actually asking questions of each other and asking and giving answers to each other. So, we're just making an observation. We found a dialogue. We found not, not only did a question and answer, but we found a dialogue. So dialogues can have questions and answers. 
Notice the text includes a dialogue. Who's speaking and who are they speaking to? That's what we would ask in a dialogue. And in this case, we identify Jesus and the Pharisees are both asking and answering questions. Purpose and result statements. We've got 15 minutes left. These are more specific types of means, often telling why. Purpose and result are very similar and sometimes indistinguishable. If a purpose, if in a purpose statement, you usually can insert the phrase, in order that, to find a purpose, in order that is, leads to a purpose. And the result is, so that. So if, it's, if you can insert the word so that, that will help you find a result. If you can, if you can insert the word in order that, it generally is a purpose. So we're looking for purpose statements and result statements. Okay, I've given you four separate ones. So who wants Ephesians 2.10? Raise your hand. Okay, Katie, John 3.16. Volunteer. David, John 15.16. Brianna, Deuteronomy 6.3. I want you to find the general, I want you to find a purpose or a result statement in each of those phrases. And who volunteered for Deuteronomy? Okay, thank you, CC. So, Ephesians 2.10. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I have no clue. I'm just like... We're looking for a purpose or a result. Remember, we can, what we can do, we can insert the words in order that or so that to help us find them. For we are God's workmanship and handiwork. So where could you put, could you, could you put uh, in order that or so that in this sentence? It makes sense. Yeah, uh, where his handiwork. <laughs> um, I, I, we are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus. How about if I said so that we could do good works? Right to do good works is the result. The result, right? Yes. So it would go between handiwork and created. That idea. Well, I, I, so the, um, remember I said, so that, and as a, and in order that. So I don't have a that there, but I have two. It's related, right? To do good works, right? So it is a result, right? So we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. To do good works is a result. About John 3.16. I said the result statement would be he gave his only one and only son. I don't know if the purpose would be what the world would do. Well, I like because there's that in there. That the that kind of gives us a clue, right? So that is the is a result statement. Oops. I'm cheating. Who's next? Brianna. Right. Excellent. So that, so that, those were, kind of helps you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that you might bear fruit. So that you, whatever you do in my name, God will. So an, an interesting, a very careful thing you have to do. John fifteen sixteen. Who's talking in John fifteen sixteen? And who's he talking to? 
Christ is talking. Where is this? The Last Supper, right? So, when you look at this statement, does this, does this, to be very careful in this passage with how we use these words, because Christ is talking to specific people, right? We can say we are chosen. That's true of us. And you might be able to say we're appointed, but we're certainly not appointed like the people in that room are, <laughs> Right? So some aspect of this verse can be applied to us, but some aspect of the verse really is given specifically to the apostles, right? So in in trying to understand Scripture, we really need to look at a bigger passage uh, in this paragraph to find out what's going on. So so that you might... So you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That... You could possibly argue that applies to, to Christians in general because we're appointed to do those things as well, but it very specifically has a specific connotation to the apostles, right? Which there's 11 in the room at the moment. <laughs> <clears throat> so you might go and bear fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. An interesting statement made specifically to the, to the 11 apostles at the Last Supper, just going through thinking of the implications of that statement. We also are chosen, right? And we are to also go and bear fruit. But this specifically is being stated to the apostles. So be very careful in this passage how you interpret whether this applies to me or it applies to the apostles. It's just a general guideline to look to look at. Because there's there's times in that passage he's clearly talking to the apostles and he's not talking about us. So where'd I go? What's my next one? Cece. Yeah. So that it will go well with you and that you might increase greatly in the land for his broken hands about the land. This is the word that God is promised. So we're just looking for results. God did something, right? And there was a result of something God did. That it may go well with you. Hear, O Israel, be careful to obey, and if you be careful to obey, right, it will go well with you and you will increase greatly in the land. So, we're not trying to go any deeper. There's more questions we could ask, right? And just doing these highlights are making you ask those questions, right? Means uh, by which something is accomplished. Um, Note of a sentence indicates that something was done by means or someone or something. It answers a how. Usually, you can insert the phrase by the means of into the sentence. So when an action as a result of a purpose is stated, look for the means. So the example, what is the means in Romans 8.13? But if by the Spirit you are put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. What's the means? Right? Putting to death, right? Sorry. Right, by the Spirit. By the Spirit's the means by which these things happen. Not your will, right? The Spirit is the means by which misdeeds of the body are put to death. This is an action uh, and means... This is the action and means of Psalm 119.9. Right? How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Okay, I'm sorry, it's a new question. Psalm 119.9. 
What is the action and the means? How can a young person stay the path of purity by living according to, the, to your word? What's the actions and means? Yeah. Yeah. So the action, <clears throat> right, followed by the means. So in, in a sense, when we take the time to do the observations, we can see more meaning in a sentence that's there, right? Um, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Conditional clauses. A clause can represent the condition by which an action or consequence will result. Often such statements we will see if, then, so or then are typically used in these conditional clauses. Hopefully that's... Okay, I'm going to give you two. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. What's the condition? And what's the consequence? Right, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to. Yeah, I agree. Both of those are there. There's almost like there's two. There's two different act. There's almost two different actions and means there, right? Uh, because claiming to have fellowship, that's where the lie is, right? And walking in the darkness, that's why it's not living out the truth. So, um, what do you, I'm, I don't know what kind of compound uh, conditional clause we have there, but there's an if, right? And a then, both components there. Second uh, Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. What's the condition? And the consequence? Yeah. Actions, roles of people, and action roles of God. And, and I said this is often where the active-passive words, verbs, are going to be significant. And the active and passive are sentence observations. But in bigger passages. So here's Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and give himself up for us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What are the action roles of people? We are told to be imitators of God. and So there's a second thing there. We're also told to be imitators of God. That's an action for us, right? And we're told to live a life that Christ did. Um, what is Christ or God's role? Right, he offers himself up to God for us. So God has a role there, and we have a role and an action there. And we don't want to miss either person's action or either person's role because to grasp the fullness of the sentence, we want to find the, the role for us and the role for God. <clears throat> Emotional terms. This one's pretty easy. i got four minutes left, and I haven't started the last section. Okay, he's going to take... 
the discourses. The discourses is the fun one. Man, he gets the fun one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, look at this sentence and look at the, all the underlines. Is the emotion in these words rather apparent? Can you read these as emotional words and not just matter-of-the-fact words? I plead with you, brothers and sisters, be like me. You did me no wrong, right? As you know, it was because of my illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And in my illness was a trial to you. My illness. Can you see the emotion in the words, right, that's present here, that's implied that's all we're trying to see. It's a, it's a, it's a passage that communicates emotion. Um, that's I'm not going to go much more than that, so we're going to see it because I'm running out of time. Uh, what's the general tone of this passage? And there's an emotional component in here as well. I want you to read these two passages, and you can connect emotion to these two as well, or at least one of them. Which one's got the emotion in it? There's Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Huh? You foolish Galatians! Who's bewitched you? Huh? Right? So, um, just the contrast, right? And the tones. What's the, just noticing the difference in the two. This is just kind of matter-of-fact statements. Right, and this one is Paul's exceedingly emotional. He's very excited. He's very anxious and concerned about the salvation of many of the Galatians. That's why he's mm-hmm. responding this way. And when you read the text, you want to read it with the emotion. You want to see Paul getting excited, right? So we're going to go quickly through these because I'm not going to miss all those. And we're going to jump to the assignment. Oh, those are the fun ones, too. Oh, I went too fast. Can you relaunch that to the very last slide? So all I want to do is go over the assignment. You have an assignment for next week. That's, there's an additional handout over there, which is that assignment. Right? Um, so, assignment 5-3. What chapter do you think you'll find assignment 5-3 in? Chapter 5. Chapter five. Okay. I'm out of time. Or I miss the fun stuff. <laughs> you know why I miss the fun stuff? Because I don't get to explain. And Lee, why don't you go ahead and repeat that for the live streamers? Yes, yeah, so what we want you to do is, is take that homework assignment in 5-3 and look for the connections between the passages. That's what... Uh, you can actually read through chapter 5 and you can see some observations of connections. And um, the connections are fun. 
No, but I don't get to tell you about one of my questions. Where is it? Comes right, comes here. Oh, well, I get, I'll get to tell you about... I ran across this word in the list. So next week, you can start off the class. We'll go through the assignment, and you can use that to sort of teach what we couldn't get to. The connections. Okay, sure. He has great, great expectations of me. So, okay. It's 8 o'clock. Let's close in prayer. Father, uh, we're just thankful. We are specifically thankful that you have preserved with care your words. Um, You have preserved them through the multiplicity of manuscripts that give us great confidence. We have documents that precisely give us exactly what you want us to know and hear. Lord, help us to be diligent. Help us to be careful. Help us to be serious readers. That we approach Scripture with some diligence. Um, we look carefully um, and I pray that we would get excited as we see the connections between the, the words, the phrases, and the passages and we start to see more fully what's there that we overlooked as we were just doing reading. I pray you'd help us to uh, be diligent and careful in our effort to study your word. In these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.